So the word that we're using this morning is this word sealed in Greek, sphragada. And the, the idea behind it is, as, you've, as we've gone through the opening of these six, six seals, right, that take us to the very end of time, the question that we all have is, what, what happens to us as Christians, okay? Do we have to live through that period that was called the tribulation? The answer is, yes, we do. We're right in the midst of it, okay? That's the hard news. The tough news is that God, God does not just suck us up into heaven and say, okay, I'm going to protect you guys up here, and I'm going to put the rest of the people under tribulation. No, the tribulation began with the advent of Jesus Christ and will continue up until his return. So what's happening to us? Well, the, the kind of the, the beautiful thing that begins in chapter uh, 7 is God says, okay, John, you're having to watch what I'm doing, and it's hard. Because with each breaking of the seal, God does what he unleashes. He unleashes hardship upon the world and upon people. And we look at it and we go, God, what are you doing? Stop. You know, it's the classic question that my friends that are not Christians ask me. Look, you say you follow this loving God. Yes, I do. You say that this God cares about people. Yes, I do. But I open up the paper and I, I read about these people that got killed in their home by this crazy terrorist guy. Couldn't God have stopped that? And I read in my paper about this, this tornado that comes and wipes out this town. Couldn't God have stopped that? And I, and I read about the, the, these people that, that died from cancer, these little babies. Babies that died from cancer. Couldn't God stop that? If you tell me, Luke, that you follow such a loving, gracious, wonderful God, why would God allow all of those things, cancer and tornadoes and murder and war, why would he allow that? Couldn't, couldn't God stop it? I tell him, yes, God could stop it, just like that. Why doesn't he? Here's the answer that the world cannot understand. Here's why he doesn't stop it, because he's a loving and gracious God. Hmm? What's so loving and gracious about, about that? Well, the book of Revelation is trying to shout that message out to us. It's trying to say to us that what is good and loving and gracious about that is God, God put a curse upon the very world that he created. It's, you'll, you read about it in Genesis 3. For the purpose of doing what? Of causing us as human beings to need him. To, to come to our knees to say, you know what? I can't stop a tornado, and I can't stop a war, and I can't stop cancer from happening. And guess what? I, I could die from any of those things. But if I die from any of those things, guess what I do have from Jesus Christ? I have faith. And so the worst thing that can happen to me in this world is I can lose my life, but I never lose my life. I have faith in Jesus Christ. I will live forever. And the purpose of pain, the purpose of what God is doing in our world right now is simply to cause people to realize, I can't fix this world. I can't fix myself. I need a Savior. And that is a very loving and gracious God that is doing all of this. To watch it happen the way that John is watching it happen is not easy. You don't, you don't receive the revelation as John is and say, oh, that's, a, that's wonderful. It's not like going to a movie and say, oh, what a neat scene. Oh, that was a great... No, John is a human being. He's like you and me. And as he watches these six seals being opened, he's, every one of them is hard. And he is at that place of saying, God, stop. 
Just stop. Give me, give me a good word. And so chapter 7 through the fifth chapter in verse 8 are what we call this interlude where God says, okay, John, pull back here. Let me just show you what I'm doing with my followers. I am going to take care of them. And so we get this picture of God sealing, sealing the foreheads of all of those who have to go through the tribulation. Now, it's done in a symbolic way, so kind of go back through this with me. Chapter 7, verse 1, we just, just a little review. It says, After this I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out, with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Okay, we talked about this last week. So this is the reprieve. This is John, come up here. Before I release my curse upon the world, before I ever let that happen, I already sealed, put my stamp of ownership upon all those who will come out of the tribulation, who at the end of time will belong to me. Now, in history, if you were to, if you were to, to, to kind of put a time frame on this, you'd say, well, when, when does this sealing take place? This, this sealing that takes place took place actually, if in, some, in some senses, before the beginning of time. What John is looking at is a God who already before he said, let there be light, knows what's going to happen. Man will sin. I will place a curse on the earth. I will give to people that which they need to come through the tribulation of this world, namely faith. And in the end, there will be all of those who believe in me. So from the beginning of time, those who will know Jesus Christ and have faith are already known by him, and as you come into this world, are sealed in him. That is, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, faith. That's what it means to be sealed. You are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, namely faith. Now, how many people are there? When you get to heaven, how many people will you see? 144,000, right? No. This is another place that people get stuck, right? He says, until we have sealed this, the servants of our God on their foreheads, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, so I want to say a couple of things here. First of all, the number, 144,000, where does it come from? Well, we looked at this last week. This is a, it's kind of an interesting number because it is 12 twelves, right? It's, it's appropriate to this picture because we are looking at Tribes, right? How many tribes were there? Twelve, all right? So twelve twelves is simply saying what? That God is going to seal or give faith to the exact number of people that he's already foreknown from the beginning of time. What is that number? We don't know. All, all we can say is it's a perfect number. So don't read the number literally. What group of Christians or people who claim to be Christians do read this number literally? 
Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? So um, this has kind of been my story over the years. Jehovah's Witness comes to the door and they knock and, and I usually, you know, ask them, that, well, they'll ask me, first of all, their favorite question is, can we read the Bible for you? That's, that's kind of the open question. I'm like, I love the Bible. I tell them, I love the Bible. Would you read the Bible for me? And they start reading the Bible. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, what Bible is that? And they're like, well, it's, this is the Bible that we have. The Bible, it's the Holy Bible. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I go, well, there's different kinds of Bibles. Are you sure you're, I said, if you, would you do me a favor? Would you turn in your Bible to John chapter one? It's my favorite. And they'll go, oh, yes. I go, I love it when we read the Bible. Would you read that to me? And they start reading and they go, well, in the beginning, you know, it was the word and the word was a God. That's the Jehovah's Witness translation. What are they trying to say? That Jesus, the word, was a little g God. He's not God. He's just a person. He's a prophet to God, right? One who will speak about God and who will give a witness to God. He's Jehovah's witness. That's where their name comes from. So I always stop and I go, whoa, 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 stop right there. Wait, 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 wait. I said, I love the Bible, but you got to have the right Bible. I'm like, well, we have the right Bible. I go, well, let me read that out of my Bible. I go, I tell them, have you ever read this Bible? It's a great Bible right here. This is called the Greek Bible. Have you read one of those? And they're like, no, we, we can't read Greek. I go, well, I can. Let me just read this to you. In arcane hein halagos, kahelagos hein theos. I go, do you know what a copulative verb is? And they're like, what a copulative verb? I go, a copulative verb is like an equal mark. And so what's happening is here in the Greek language with no questions asked. And by the way, I've got a little apparatus here that shows all the deviations in every single manuscript that exists on planet Earth. There is no deviation on this. Here's what it says. Jesus was God. In the beginning when the word was the word, and the word was God. Would you like to read it? I'll, I'll put it like that to them. They're like, we can't read that. I'm like, that's too bad. I tell them, you need to get a real Bible. Because the real Bible says that Jesus was God. Then I always ask them this question. This is the question that gets a red mark on my door. The red mark on your door means don't come back to this door. <laughs> This is my question to him with a big smile. You got to make sure you have a big smile on your face when you say this. Say, hey, I got a question for you guys. Are you going to be one of the 144,000 on New Earth? Now say it that way. Are you going to be one of the 144,000 on New Earth? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when you die, uh, when you die, you don't go to heaven. You just die and your body becomes dirt. That's it. There's no hell. Jehovah's Witnesses don't, don't have a hell in their domain. So you die and you become dirt and then that's it. But when God returns, when Jehovah returns, he'll restore the earth and he will remake the 144,000 to live with him on new earth. Those 144,000 will dwell with him on earth and will reign with him on earth. By the way, a little bit of a misnomer. A lot of people don't know this, but if you ask Jehovah's Witnesses, will there be more people on earth than 144,000. Today they will say yes. Today they'll say there will be other people who are on the earth who were Jehovah's Witnesses, but the 144,000 are those who truly gave their witness to Jehovah. And they will rule with 
Jesus on new earth. So, big smile. Are you one of the 144,000? This is what will almost always happen is that Jehovah's Witness will look down like this and they'll say, we, we would not presume to name ourselves among the 144,000. In their teachings, it, it is not right for you to put yourself in that number. Now, inside of themselves, they're thinking, you bet, I'm going to be one. But it would be rude and improper to say, I am one of 144,000. So keep that big smile on your face and say this to them. Oh, that's too bad. Because I am one of the 144,000. Get the red pin out, they put the mark on your door. You're like, this guy right here is really like satanic, bad news. First he's given us some Greek Bible, now he's telling us he's one of the 144,000. But it's true. What I try to say to them is I, I know I am one of the 144,000 because this is who they were. They're the people who were sealed by God, who were given faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. By the way, remember when I told you who Jesus was? He was God and he went to the cross and he died for you. And if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ as God, he will save you. You can be one of the 144,000. They say, have a good day. <laughs> and they turn around and walk off. They're one of the few groups out there who try to literalize this, this number. And it's not intended to be that. It's intended to just point to the, the whole of all of those who, who are given faith during, during history, right? In all of history. So that when we come to the end, you will find that 144,000, all of those who have faith standing, they will, we will all say, what brought me through the tribulation was faith in Jesus Christ. Now, second question. This is where people go awry. Where did the 144,000 come from? Second big mistake that you're going to see made over and over and over in literature. A lot of people now will say, well, just look at the names of the tribes. Here's what it says. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Essachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Here's the mistake a lot of people will make. They will say to me, the 144,000 are Jews. Now what's being referred to here is the idea that at the end of the tribulum, at the end of the tribulation time, all Jews will be saved. So when you read a book like Left Behind or you go to the movie Left Behind or you read, you read Late Great Planet Earth, some of those pretty popular narratives on Revelation today, what I will tell you is always in them you will see the Jews going through the tribulation and at the end of the tribulation is the idea that every single one of them as Jews will be saved. In other words, a lot of Christian writers today say because the tribes are mentioned, that 144,000, that's who they are. They're the Jews who will all be saved. They were sealed so that at the end of time, uh, even though they don't believe in Jesus Christ now, at the end of time they will, they'll come out of the tribulation believing in him. Okay? That's why one of the central characters 
and left behind is a Jew who converts and becomes a Christian. And he is kind of the symbol in that book for all the Jews who in the end of time will come to know Jesus Christ. How do we know that's not true? Okay. Well, a couple of things. First of all, notice that Revelation is always symbolic. Okay. Even here, it stays symbolic. This list of the 12 tribes of Israel, what's wrong with it? Something's wrong with it. We don't know that something's wrong with it because we're Western Christians and we don't think about our history. But if we did, we would see about that fast that there's two tribes that are missing. Tribe of Dan. You see them in there? Nope. And the tribe of Ephraim. They're not in there. Should they be in there? Well, if you went back and you literally went through the Old Testament and you, you've read every list of tribes that exists, Dan and Ephraim would be included. And so something is being said here. What do we know about the tribes of Dan and Ephraim? They became apostate. They went away from their faith. And so they're not included here. Wait a minute, I thought all the Jews were going to be saved. If that's your argument that this points to the fact that all the Jews are going to be saved, you got two whole tribes missing. Why are they missing? Because it's symbolic. It's not meant to say that this is just simply about the Jews. What tribes are present that are not typically present in Old Testament lists of tribes? Two of them. The two tribes that are added are the tribe of Levi. Remember Levi, the Levites were what? They were the priests. They were given charge over the worship life of Israel. They actually received no land. When they were brought into the promised land, all the tribes were apportioned land except for the Levitical tribe. And the Levitical tribe was, was given no land. Why? Well, because you will be servants to those who are upon God's land. You will serve the temple, right? And yet here they show up as a tribe. Levi does. Second one that's added is the tribe of Joseph. Not included in Old Testament lists. Okay? So put it together, what's really being said here is we're not talking simply about Jewish people. We're talking about Israel as understood in the New Testament sense. Israel equals all of those who are what? Believers in Jesus Christ. Okay. So what's happening here is symbolically we're being told that people from all nations and backgrounds are part of those tribes that originally were only Jews. Here's where you see that, and then I'm going to take you to a cross-reference and try to make some sense of it for you. Notice verse 9, what he says. After this, I looked. Okay, so I heard... 12,000, 12,000. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the throne, the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with white, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So he looks now, he hears the tribes, then he looks, and what does he see? He sees people from every tribe and every nation and every language. 
Well, where does this show up in the New Testament clearly? Where in the New Testament does this show up clearly? Probably the most clear reference to what John is seeing here is given to us over in the book of Romans. And so I'm going to have you turn to two places. First of all, Romans chapter 9, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 11. When we're in 11, I'm going to cross-reference you over to Isaiah 29. Okay? So first, Romans chapter 9. Just flip over there with me. This is where Paul speaks, I think, in a very clear way to what we're seeing. Romans 9, just a couple of verses here for you that are important. Begin with verse number 6, and then we'll go to 7 and 8. Verse number 6, uh, what, what, what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about Israel. And the question on the table is, who is Israel? Is Israel equal to only the bloodline Jews? And what Paul is saying is, no, no. Watch his words, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now for Jews, those words are extremely hard to hear. Let's just listen to them again. If I'm a Jew and I'm living at the time of Paul, what do I believe about myself? I'm one of the sealed. I'm God's elect. Right? And so here comes this guy, and he stands up in front of me, he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Wow. Those are pretty powerful words. If I'm a Jew and I listen to those words, do they make me happy? No. Opposite. Why? Because I've grown up my whole life being told, you as the Jews are a covenantal nation. God will keep his covenant with you. You are sealed in him. You are Israel. Here comes this guy, Paul, and he goes, you know what? If you are a descendant of, 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 of Abraham, of the Jews, it doesn't mean you actually belong to Israel. So what does Israel equal? Well, just keep reading. Here's what he says. Verse 7. Not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Here's what Paul is trying to say. Israel equals not a group of people who have a bloodline, physically, but Israel equals all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Jews who had faith in what? Jesus to come. They called him Yahshua, Messiah. In the New Testament, all those who have faith in Jesus Christ equals Israel. Flip over to chapter 11. Probably one of the more interesting sections of Romans. Here's Paul. Kind of follows. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Okay, so you made us your covenant people. Did you reject us? His answer, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? 
how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left that they may seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? No, no, Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I think that word remnant is pretty significant. What Paul is trying to say here is, well, did God just reject Israel then? No. Amongst the Jews, God will always keep a remnant of people, right, who do what? Who have faith in him. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll find that there are many of the patriarchs who are saved, who you will see in heaven, who will be on the new earth. Why? Because they had faith in Jesus. They didn't call him Jesus. They called him Messiah. But that's what, that's what saved them. Not works, but their faith in Jesus. They're the remnant. Okay? Today, are, is there a remnant amongst the Jews? Yes, there is. We find that there are Jews who come out of Judaism and become what we call Messianic Christians and who hold on to faith in Jesus Christ in other words, there are people who are Christian who have a Jewish bloodline, right? So that is the remnant. And Paul says God will always have that remnant. He will always keep it. So what's happened to the Jews today? This is very interesting to me. Verse number seven says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. What is that hardening? Here's how I've experienced in my life. I, I, I mean, I don't know if you have any Jewish friends or people in your life. But a lot of the Jews who have been a part of my life over, over time really are what I would just call almost, almost atheists, right? Um, don't care about God, don't care about eternity, just care about how am I going to live my life today. I should live my life honorably. And I look at the Jews, a lot of the Jews that I know today, and I go, how did you get so far away? You know, I mean, your people were the covenant people. What happened to you? Well, there's a hardening that happened, okay? That hardening happened over the course of time, over the course of history. And what happens is you get to a point where God turns you over to your hardness of heart. And what's happening when Paul's preaching to people, he's saying the Jews today have hardened themselves against Jesus Christ, and they're being given over to that hardness so that they cannot even see or hear the word of God, except for that remnant. And that remnant, God continues to hold on to. All right, go back over to Revelation. So let me kind of wrap this up or put this, this part of it into, into, um, into perspective. 
you've got two things happening. The 12,000, the 12,000 from all these tribes. What I believe John is seeing there is he is seeing the remnant of the Jews who will believe in Jesus Christ. And he's saying God sealed them from the beginning of time. Verses 9, or verse number 9, what does John see? He sees the whole of all of those who have been sealed from every tribe and every nation. If you took all of them and put them in a big pile, those from every nation, including the United States, along with those who are remnant Jews, and you said, who is this group of people? The right answer would be, this group of people is Israel. Spiritual Israel. Okay? And so a lot, a lot of times I will say to, to Christians, you are Israel. Because scripturally, Israel is not about a bloodline, it is about a faith line in Jesus Christ. And that's what John is seeing here, is he's seeing the sum total of all of those Jewish people who've come to believe in Jesus Christ, people from all nations who've come to believe in Jesus Christ, all of them have the same thing. They have been sealed in Jesus Christ. And the way he sees them is standing before the throne of God holding up palm branches. The palm branch. What is it? A symbol of victory. They have overcome the tribulation. And so they stand before the, the Lamb and the way that they overcame the tribulation is they are clothed in white robes. They're clothed with Christ, right? And they're crying out in a loud voice. And what are they saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to Lamb. Those words are important for John to hear. And I just kind of, kind of put this back into perspective for you. If I'm watching all these hard things happening on earth, this is an uplifting scene. Because what it allows me to do, it allows me to step back from it all and say, despite all the hard things going on on the earth, there is yet even now this group of those who are saved standing before Jesus Christ and they are clothed in him and they are shouting out, victory. God has already obtained victory. And I think about that a lot living in our world today because there are times when you say to yourself, it looks like the bad guys are winning. Yes? Um, there's times when you open the paper and you're like, man, the whole world seems like it belongs to hell. <laughs> Guess what? That's what Revelation is saying. Revelation is saying that the closer we get to that second coming of Jesus Christ, guess what you're going to see? More and more and more signs that the bad guy is winning here in this domain. Guess what? He's on a short leash. Because if you could see in heaven right now, everybody is already shouting, guess what? We've won. The victory has already been achieved. The victory was already achieved, guess when? The day Jesus Christ went to a cross, right? One of my favorite um, song artists back when I was younger um, was, a, was a guy who um, would go out to to beaches and set up, um, set up his sound equipment. His name was Carmen. And uh, set up his sound equipment. And on spring break, when all the kids were, you know, partying and drinking beer and holy smokes, um, having all kinds of crazy stuff, he would set up his stuff on the beach and he would put on a concert and, and, and inevitably would draw thousands of people into that setting. 
And uh, when you go back and you read Carmen's story, it's really a story of a guy who, in the midst of spring breaks, brought a lot of kids to know Jesus Christ. One of my favorite songs that Carmen does is a song where you kind of hear hell on the day that we call Good Friday. And what you hear in hell is this giant celebration that's going on, like almost like we've done it, you know, we've overcome him. And uh, there's shouts and joy, and then all of a sudden it gets real quiet. And you almost hear this big, uh-oh, in hell, when hell recognizes that Jesus Christ is coming to proclaim his victory. Here are some words that I've spent lots of time sitting in an office trying to explain to people. We stand up and we say these words on Sunday mornings. He descended into hell. And I've had a lot of people, especially when I live in Texas, because the evangelicals reject that. You know, the, the Lutheran body that you're a part of, we retain the old historic apostolic creeds, including the Nicene and Athanasian. We stand up and say them. The evangelical community rejects them. Here's one of the reasons why. They sit in my office and they say to me, you can't tell me that Jesus Christ went to hell. Oh, yes, I can. First Peter chapter 3, yes, I can. Well, why would Jesus go to hell? This is it. To proclaim, guess what? I have already overcome you. I am victorious. And this is, what, this is what Jesus and the Spirit are doing for John. They're saying, come back up here. You're down here. You're looking at all this devastation going on. Come back up here and look at what's going on is the victory has already been won. Those who are sealed by me will come through this tribulation, John. John, do not fret. Do not worry. Have faith in me. That's the purpose of this little uh, interlude that he's given us. Let's close it out. Verse 11 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. Now, I want you to count the number of things that they say. Just count them off. Saying, Amen. Blessing. Now, now after the Amen, count them off. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. How many? Seven, Seven right? <clears throat> so what they're saying is, you've got two amens. Amen and amen, and seven things between the two. Amen means this is right, verily, and true. Amen, this is right, verily, and true. Seven things, everything belongs to God. He is the victor who has overcome everything. It all belongs to him. All honor, power, wisdom, thanksgiving, glory. Then, verse 13, we're going to see this a couple more times in the Revelation, and it always cracks me up. Every single time I see it, it makes me laugh. Okay, watch what happens. Then, one of the elders addressed me. Now, remember, this, this scene we've seen before in chapter 4 with the elders and the four creatures, right? So now one of the elders turns to John and addresses him, and notice what he says. He says, John, who are those clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Okay, now question for you this morning. Does the elder already know the answer to that question? 
Yes, he does, right? So why does he ask John? You're going to see this happen several times in the Revelation is. You're going to see angels or the elder address John, and John always goes something like this. You're supposed to know that, not me, <laughs> right? How am I supposed to know that? I don't live here. This is your domain. So the elder's asking him, trying to get John's attention. He's trying to say, John, I want you to think about who are these people that you're seeing standing here? And John doesn't know. He doesn't know. And so he turns back to the elder and he says, Sir, you know this, right? And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ is what makes our robes white. It is that and that alone that saves us. Then he closes out with several quotations. The first quotation, Isaiah chapter 4. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Remember when Isaiah first spoke these words? He was pointing forward to a physical time on earth when God would set Israel free from its captivity in Babylon. And what he was saying to the people is, you're going to be crushed by God. You're going to go into captivity for a period of time. But God will rescue you from that and you will be in his presence as he sits upon a throne. God will overcome that. Now, think about this. Isaiah is always pointing beyond that physical moment in time to when? The end. And what he's saying is on new earth, the ultimate relationship with God will be had. You will be before the throne of God serving him day and night in his temple and he will shelter you with his presence. When we live on the new earth, Something will be restored that hasn't taken place since the days of Adam and Eve. When you go back and read Genesis, notice these words. And he walked with us in the garden. God literally, physically dwelt on this earth at one time. He was not always present with Adam and Eve. But there are times when God literally walked with Adam and Eve. That has not taken place now since the fall. Since the fall, the only time God has come back to earth is through Jesus Christ. When we are on new earth, God will literally be, he will literally be here on earth with us. You will dwell with him on new earth. Verse number 16 from Psalm 121, verse 6. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. I'm not going to get into this, but there are those who ask the question, will there be a sun on new earth? And many suggest not. That God himself provides all the radiance that is needed to dwell on the earth. Interesting. That he is your sun. Verse 17. This one comes from Psalm 36. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That part, Psalm 23. He will guide them to springs of living water, Psalm 36, 8. What is David always doing? 
pointing us forward to eternity. Here's what's going to happen. Just read those words that way sometimes. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. Remember Jesus at the well? If you drink of that water, you'll be thirsty again. If you drink of my water, you will never thirst again. And then from Isaiah 25, verse 8, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God physically present on earth. No crying, no death, no sun. A whole different way of living. That's what he's pointing forward to. He's saying, John, God has already won that for you. And now we're ready to open the seventh seal.